This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. The legal information presented on In Legal Terms is meant to provide general information about the topics discussed and is not necessarily the opinion of Mississippi Public Broadcasting. The information conveyed does not create any type of attorney-client relationship. Please consult an attorney provider before making any decisions about your specific legal questions. Welcome to In Legal Terms from MPB Think Radio, the show all about you and your rights. Our host is Professor Richard Gershon of the University of Mississippi School of Law. I'm Liz Gill. Hello, Professor Gershon. Good morning, Liz. Hope you're having a good day. And, uh, you know, today uh, we're excited. Uh, we're going to be welcoming back Attorney Terry Little to talk about property law because that's always a, a hot topic and, and one that uh, people are interested in. And, Mr. Little, would you please remind us about your background? Sure. Uh, and first of all, Richard, Liz, thank you all for having me on. I always appreciate the opportunity to come on. I have been doing uh, primarily real estate closing since 2012. Um, previously, I worked for an insurance defense firm uh, in Oxford, Mississippi, and um, we would handle you know, all sorts of insurance matters on the defense side, be it premises liability, car wrecks, things like that. But since 2012, I've primar- primarily been focusing on the uh, real estate side of the law. Well, you know, you and I were talking before the show that uh, I, when, in 2020, you were on the show in, in late 2020. And I think, you know, because the pandemic, pandemic was at its, its worst then, um, nobody expected the housing market to be what it is and what it has been. And so your practice has been really busy with real estate closings. Can you talk a little bit about exactly what is a real estate closing? Yeah, sure. Real estate closing is primarily when two parties come together, form a contract to to sell and purchase real property. Um, and what we do is we usually receive the contract, do a title search on the property. If there's a lender involved, we get with the lender and make sure that we get everything the lender needs to be able to issue the loan. And then we facilitate the transfer of funds between the parties, make sure that title is clean whenever we give it to the buyer and uh, disperse funds to anybody that needs to be paid off at the time of closing. And the interesting point back to the, about how we got real busy, and this is a national phenomenon, people discovered that during the pandemic, they could work uh, from just about anywhere in the U.S. since a lot of things were being done uh, with telecommunications, internet, things like that. So so there's been a lot of uh, focus on maybe even getting a bigger house, having more room in case you were actually working from your house for an extended period of time. And that kind of started the boom, I would say. Yeah, it's been so fascinating. I think probably, uh, you know, I certainly thought it would be, uh, you know, hard to sell a house during that time, but, uh, you know, that has not been the case. Um, so do in Mississippi, uh, does uh, real estate closing require uh, someone to use a real estate or an attorney to, to help with the closing? So, so two parties on their own could actually come together, draw up their own contract, exchange funds, exchange deeds for the property. They could do that without the use of attorney. Practically, I would say that that almost never happens unless maybe it's just between family members. Um, but, but in the context of you needing to have any sort of uh, a lender involved, borrowing money, you, you would have to have an attorney involved. The attorney is the only one that can write the title insurance that the lender requires. And we usually also offer an owner's title policy for the buyer to make sure that they uh, are secure in the title to their property whenever they take it and don't have any issues later on. So in, in that aspect of it, you would have to have an attorney. We also prepare a settlement statement. We also have certain disclosure requirements we have to make to the IRS regarding uh, seller proceeds and report those via 1099-S to the IRS. If you don't mind, Terry, would you mind uh, just talk a little bit about what is clear title? What does that even mean? You know, people hear that term, and how does a, how does a lawyer help uh, find that the title is, in fact, clear? Yeah, clear title, and, and the contracts usually say marketable title. And so a marketable title or clear title is basically one that's passed free of any liens that are attached to the property and any claims that are attached to the property. 
you could have people have, that have a potential adverse claim to the property. Uh, and then also you could have a various number of liens that are attached to the property. And those would affect the marketability of the property or whether the title was clear or not. And so mortgages are lien on property, judgments against a person who owns real property is a potential lien on the property. Uh, whenever we do our title search, we discover, you know, whether there are any mortgages outstanding that need to be paid, whether there are any judgments against a person that attached to the property, uh, any other liens, maybe like an HOA lien that's attached to the property. We discover what those are. We contact the parties to find out what's needed to pay those off at closing. And so we list those on the settlement statement, charge them against the seller. Um, we actually handle the disbursement of the funds to the people that are owed money for the liens that are attached on the property. And therefore, we pass that property onto the buyer free and clear of all liens. And that's what we mean by clear title or marketable title. Really, my first introduction to the law was a friend of mine's father owned a mortgage brokerage, and he would he took us, he would take us down to the Fulton County, and I was in Atlanta, Fulton County uh, records, you know, court records, and go through the grantor and grantee indexes, you know, these giant books. Um, when you do title searches now, or when someone does them for a lawyer, do they usually do that? Uh, most of those online at this point. So in Mississippi, we we've got quite a few of them that are online. Um, our home county, Lafayette, has got just about everything online. Most of the older documents, there may be some that are that are not online. If you have to go very far back, a number of years, you may have to actually go to the courthouse and you know look through the physical records that are kept on file. I actually started um, in law school working for a real estate attorney, and I was abstracting for him. And we would go at that time to the courthouse, open up these huge musty smelling books and go through the grantor grantee index and if we were lucky there was a subdivision index that we could also go through kind of speed things up for us um, but all that stuff's been scanned in it's been computerized and you can usually find that stuff online and uh, but but it's 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 really it's really an art. The, the search for and through the records is an art. And a lot of times, if the attorney doesn't do it, we hire abstracting companies or abstractors that go to the courthouse and or go to their online records and look through those records and find the documents for us. We're talking today about property, real estate law. Our show does fill up pretty fast, so if you have a question, it would be great. It would behoove you to get your calls in earlier for the show. So if you have a question about what if someone's injured on your home, how do real estate closings work, what are the variety of leases, this is your show today. We've got attorney Terry Little who will help us navigate and learn this, learn the laws. We will always accept your questions by email. That address is legalterms at mpbonline.org. So, uh, Terry, if somebody is buying or selling, uh, you know, you want to close, but what do you need to do before a closing? Well, typically what we will do is we will get in touch with the buyer and the seller. We'll get as much information from them as we can. We'll ask them if, they, if they've got any, for the seller, we'll ask them if they've got any outstanding mortgages that need to be paid off. We'll ask for their HOA contact information. Um, we will get the necessary information to be able to fill out the various disclosures that we have to file and give to the IRS. And, and we really just work with the parties to to get everything lined up so that everything happens in an orderly manner and prepare for a closing date sometime in the future. And, and by that time, hopefully we've received all the information we need to prepare the deeds, uh, give the lender any information that they need in order to be able to pair their loan documents, and then just arrange a time uh, for both parties to come in and sign with us and we can actually uh, get everything signed, sent back to the lender and disperse the the loan proceeds and, and finalize the closing. We have a call already. It's Tim from Pascagoula. Tim, we're glad you've called into in legal terms. What's your comment or question? Hi, um, I was asking 
if I'm if I'm the, a purchaser, I'm a buyer, and I'm paying you to do a title abstract to guarantee me that I'm receiving a title free and clear, and you're doing title insurance for the lien holder. What is the purpose or the need for me to purchase a owner's title insurance policy? Sure, that's a great question. And so there, there are two types of title insurance policies. For the folks that don't know, there's a lender's title policy, which protects the lender, and then there's an owner's title policy, which protects the purchaser. Uh, the reason that we offer the owner's title policies uh, is is and and these are insured by someone other than the attorney. We 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 work with the underwriter to write the policies on their behalf. Uh, but the owner's policy is good usually for as long as you or your heirs own the property and protects you against any issue related to title that's not accepted out of the commitment or the final policy um, in the event that anything happens later down the line. And so. The natural question is, well, I paid you for a title search and you prepared a certificate of title for me. Why isn't that enough? Well, the reason is, is because if that title certificate is wrong on, and the reason is due to any negligence on behalf of either the abstractor or the attorney, there's a three-year statute of limitations in Mississippi uh, that runs against negligence. And so you've got to basically discover that negligence within that time unless there's some sort of fraud involved or unless it wasn't readily apparent. Um, and then that, that claim against that attorney would lapse. But if you were able to discover any sort of negligence within a three-year statute of limitations time, you could proceed back against the attorney and go against their heirs and emissions coverage. Same thing for the abstractor. But once those three years have run, you, our insurance, our E&O carry will say that, that your claim has, has run against the statute of limitations and they won't you know they won't pay anything unless they're legally required to do it and so that's that's a good reason to get owner's title insurance because the insurance company underwriting that will insure it for as long as you or your heirs own the property that is very good to know tim i hope that helps answer your question we're discussing property today we would love for you to send us your questions to our email address legalterms at mpbonline.org. We'll get your real estate questions answered this morning. Find out what the law is from our guest, Terry Little. But we want to remind everybody, there's an election coming up. Did you know? <laughs> you only have one week to get your voter registration up to date. I'll tell you more next. You're listening to In Legal Terms on MPB Think Radio. find autocorrect helpful especially on coach charlie's tip of the week listen to our podcast with me coach charlie melton on any podcasting platform or on the mpb public media app when you look at your vehicle think of mpb need to get rid of your ride donate it by calling 877 mpb the number four car Need to have some work done on your truck? Listen to AutoCorrect Thursdays at 10, Saturdays at 11. An MPB license plate reminds you that MPB is with you wherever you go. Go to your county office and ask for an MPB car tag. MPB and cars, better together. This is in legal terms. Not everyone has a chance to listen to our show live. If you've missed any of our program, you can listen to the whole show from our website, inlegalterms.mpbonline.org. Our host is Professor Richard Gershon from the University of Mississippi School of Law. I'm Liz Gill. This week, 
the circuit clerk's offices may remain open from 8 a.m. to 7 p.m., including the noon hour for voter registration. And Saturday, May 7th, the circuit clerk offices must remain open from 8 a.m. until noon for voter registration. Monday, May 9th, is the voter registration deadline at 5 p.m., Applicants who register in person at the circuit or municipal clerk's office uh, today or mail in those applications postmarked no later than May 9th will be eligible to vote in the June 7th. Uh, election. We have two different things going on. It's primary day for our U.S. congressional representatives, which are Trent Kelly, Benny Thompson, Michael Guest, and Stephen Palazzo. Those are the incumbents. And if they face any primary contenders, <laughs> primary, what do, what do you call it, competition, uh, that's when there will be a—the uh, primary will be on June 7th from 7 a.m. to 7 p.m. But if you listen—if you live in Bolivar, Humphrey, Sharkey, or Washington County, you have a Mississippi Lev- Levy Commissioner's general election. That's on June 7th. This morning, we're talking about property with our guest, Attorney Terry Little. And, Professor Gershon, we have some very, very smart listeners because we had four people call in when I warned everybody that if you don't get your calls in early, you will not get a chance to ask your property law questions from our guest, Attorney Terry Little. So let's go first to Jeff from Mobile. Jeff, we're glad you've hung on. What's your comment or question for our property attorney? Yeah, I'd like to see if Terry could speak to boundary surveys and how they relate to title insurance, especially when you end up with a meets and bounds type legal description. Sure. And, and so a boundary survey is basically a survey prepared by a surveyor, and, and they are usually meets and bounds descriptions, which is basically just a direction, uh, a compass direction, and then uh, a distance and, and usually feet. And so this describes the outline of the property, and that's what we call a, a boundary uh, survey or boundary description. And so um, title insurance typically... Uh, excludes any sort of claim uh, with regards to a boundary survey of the property unless a survey is done. And there are different classes of surveys that can be done. There are as-built surveys, which actually show things on the property and where they're located, whether, whether anything located on the property encroaches upon another property or not. Um, then, then you can remove the boundary exception to the title policy. Um, but, but typically just a boundary description in and of itself that just states the legal description of the property and where it's located is, is, is not enough to uh, remove from the title policy exceptions uh, any types of encroachments that, that may uh, be on the property. And that could be anything from structures. It could be things that are located under the ground. It could be utilities, different things like that. But uh, we do deal with boundary surveys, um, and we do deal with with um, people or entities asking for those survey exceptions to be removed from the title policy, and we do that by getting an as-built survey. Jeff, did that help you out? Yes, it did. Thank you. Thanks for calling in. Let's move on to Sue in Beaumont now. Sue, thanks for calling in to In Legal Terms. We're talking real estate and property with our guest, Terry Little. What's your comment or question? Mazel tov. <laughs> okay, I have a question. I have a little house and two acres of land, and I made out a will and left it all to my daughter, what I have, you know, because she's the one that comes over and takes care of me a little bit, you know. So, but I have another daughter in Texas. And I said, when I die, if you sell this place, make sure that you split everything with the other daughter, you know. And But I didn't mention her in the will, so now that she's married, will her husband have, will he have more power or more rights to inherit everything or to get everything than my other daughter would? I mean, 
it, will he take precedent over mother daughter? Which which daughter is married? The one that you left the property to? Yes, uh huh. She just got married. Okay. And do you own the property by yourself without anybody else on the deed? Yes, I do. Okay. And so, in, in, is this property located in Mississippi? Yes, it is. Okay. So in Mississippi, if if you if you own property and you die with a will, uh, in order to transfer that property legally, the will would have to be probated. When you go through the probate process, um, the, someone's going to file a petition to probate the will. The will's going to be attached to the petition. you got to give notice to creditors for them to file claims against it. But ultimately, uh, the court's going to transfer the property uh, to the person that you have listed as the uh, devisee under the will, and that's going to be your daughter, and she is married. So she's your daughter is going to be the one to take title to the property. And she will be the sole owner uh, pursuant to that will. Um, the husband won't have any claim to the property, but in the event something happens to your daughter, uh, then then that property is going to pass through either her will or if she doesn't have a will, the intestate laws of Mississippi. And, and at that point, you can't really control where the property goes. So if you want the property to go to both daughters, it would probably be you know, I, I, if it were me, I would probably revise my will to state that, that each one was going to take a 50% share in the property. Okay. Well, I sure do thank you. Thank you, yes, Sue. We're glad you've called in. We still have a lot of phone calls to get to. Let's go to Mac in Jackson. Mac, thanks for calling in to In Legal Terms today. It's real estate property law with our guest attorney, Terry Little. What's your comment or question? Yes, uh, my question goes to the uh, a survey. My, uh, a neighboring property uh, recently surveyed their property and their state. There's a little bit of uh, encroachment on my side of the fence, a little bit of encroachment on their side of the fence. Um, I, I asked him about it, and he said, yeah, he surveyed it, but he never filed it in the courthouse. And it, if it's never filed in the courthouse, how, if he ever pursued some sort of, and excuse my ignorance here, adverse possession of my pro my portion of the property, uh, if it's not filed in the courthouse, can he do that, or what would he have to do to take those actions, and how would I be aware of it? I'll take my answer offline. Sure, yeah, and, and so it's, it's really not uncommon to have maybe a fence built along a property line, and it be slightly over on one's one person's property and not exactly on the property line. Basically, for him to make a claim against your property for any encroachment that he may be making on your property, he would have to follow through with the elements to prove adverse possession. And it'd have to be open, hostile, obvious, um, and it would have to be for a period of at least 10 years. And so once those things happen, he could bring a lawsuit to confirm title in himself based on adverse possession. Uh, it, you know, if, if, if there was any proof that, that the parties understood that the fence may not be exactly on the property line, but this was allowed by permission from one party to the other, uh, that could potentially stop the adverse possession claim. Um, there's adverse possession is, is, kind of hard to prove but it, it, it is very fact dependent and uh, if you do have a situation where the fence is where it is and everybody wants to keep the fence there you could all you could always execute some sort of boundary agreement where you redefine where your boundary is versus your neighbor y'all could both sign that file it in the courthouse and that would essentially serve to to give you that portion of the property that's on your side of the fence and give them that portion of the property that's on their side of the fence. That's one solution. Terry, Terry could they just, could the person just say, okay, you know what, your, your, the fence is encroaching on my side, pay me a little bit of money and that will essentially purchase that little bit of encroachment and that way may solve it that way, is that possible? Sure. I mean, they could do that. They could execute a quick claim deed to each other where they, you know, give their portion uh, of the property that's taken by the fence to the other side. Um, you could have, you could ask one person to remove the fence if it's encroaching. I mean, there's, there are several different ways that you could pursue a remedy, and it really just depends on 
what the what the neighbors want to try to accomplish and, and what remedy we've had we have heard our listeners and they say we want to ask property questions mpb is certainly fulfilling its mission to bring experts to our listeners we can take your emails our address is illegal terms at mpbonline.org we're talking with Terry Little from Harper Little in Oxford about real estate and property laws. We've got lots of phone calls, but our show does run out. So if you have a question, keep on the line until uh, and you can uh, tell Java what your question is. We've enjoyed having Terry Little on our show a few other times. I'm going to remind you of those dates of those podcasts next. You're listening to In Legal Terms on MPB Think Radio. South Dining is the show all about the culture of Southern flavor. From fried chicken and collard greens to shrimp and grits and a glass of sweet tea. Subscribe now to the podcast using any podcast app or download our MPB public media app. You're listening to In Legal Terms on MPB Think Radio. Professor Richard Gershon is our expert host. I'm Liz Gill. We do hope you'll subscribe to our podcast or Find the MPB Think Radio recordings on the website mpbonline.org slash radio. This morning we're talking about property with our guest, Terry Little, who has been on our show answering your questions on a couple other times. One was June 15th of 2021, and another was November 17th of 2020. I'll have links to those podcasts on this podcast's information. So now we're talking about um, real estate, and we have the phone calls. Let's go to Loosedale and speak with Jamie. Jamie, thank you so much for hanging on. What's your comment or question for our property expert? Hey, good morning. Uh, Over the past several years, I've collected some uh, properties with tax uh, deed and just trying to see if it's worth going ahead and getting clear clear title clear deeds to them uh no mortgages no finance no you know it's been paid out with cash just kind of get an idea on tax deeds and what i should do further on if it's if they're worth going through the process of getting clear titles sure that's a great question and uh, it's it's funny because uh, we have a real property listserv that the attorneys are members of and and there's been some discussion about tax sales on it and and my underwriter uh, had made a comment regarding a Supreme Court case that said that you know anybody taking a tax title has perfect title in the property and he made the comment that nothing could be further from the truth and and that's the that's because the, the title underwriters uh, don't consider it marketable title because uh, there are certain statutory, uh, provisions that must be followed in order to to have the tax title confirmed, and almost invariably, the clerks that are that are the ones that are doing the tax sale fail to follow, or at least to keep a record of those required procedures in order to prove that the tax sale occurred lawfully. And so it's quite easy to have tax sales set aside. And that's why the the title underwriters don't consider them marketable title until there's been a confirmation suit filed uh, in order to confirm that tax sale. And then once you file a tax confirmation suit, uh, generally you put on proof that, you know, that the that notice was given to the owner, that notice was given to any lender or lien holder on the property. they have to have an opportunity to appear and uh, defend against the tax confirmation suit. And if if they do show up and if there is any sort of defense, you, you then go back and look to see if there's records kept by the chancery clerks on whether 
proper statutory procedures were followed and they almost uh, I, I would say they seldom have those things so the easiest way to get a tax confirmation suit uh, filed and then have a, a favorable outcome is to have the other parties not show up and basically a defaults taken so you, you there are there are tax confirmation suits that are filed and you end up getting an order placing good marketable title in the tax purchaser and at that point then you got marketable title you can sell it the title underwriters will write title insurance on it and you know whether it's worth it to you or not to do that just depends on on how easy or difficult it's going to be to actually prove uh, that the various statutory procedures were followed by the chancery clerk and proper notice was given to all the parties in order to confirm that tax sale and that's just on a case-by-case -case basis and you just have to look at everything to, in order to make a determination on that i understand so if it's just something that you're not going to really be selling um would it you would you advise to kind of hold off or for you know a number of years and see if anyone comes forward or or do it immediately or what time frame what would what would be the best yeah frequently what we see with people that have purchased at tax sales and and have actually uh, obtained a tax deed is that they are usually uh, willing to quit claim their interest back to the original owner uh, provided that some amount of consideration is paid because the tax the tax uh, sale is is essentially a lien against the the property owner who had the had the property sold out from underneath them and because of the difficulty in getting the tax confirmation confirmed, uh, frequently these parties that do buy at tax sales are really just buying for the interest that's provided through the tax sale. And so they're more than happy usually to sell their interest back to the current owner, uh, provided they get paid proper consideration for their interest in the tax deed. Um, right, under, uh, under, understand, I, I kind of do my homework on things and look, and in most cases there's there's no heirs there's no it's uh, been a the owner's death you know something something like that so uh i was yeah. just curious what you know on the i try to do the homework and see you know exactly what the circumstances are yeah if there was a if there was a high likelihood of no one appearing to contest the tax confirmation suit you know in my mind i would probably file the tax confirmation suit uh, and take a chance that I could actually get a, a good valid order giving me marketable title if I wanted to own the property. Okay, all righty. Thanks for your time. Yes, sir. Thank you for calling in, Jamie from Loosedale. Let's now go to Chuck from Biloxi. Chuck, we're glad you've called in to In Legal Terms. It's Real Estate Day with our guest attorney, Terry Little. Hi, Terry. Um, the last gentleman uh, stole my thunder. I had tax confirmation suit questions. Um, possibly, if I could go into them a little deeper, I'm contemplating purchasing that from uh, a tax sale property from a uh, company that does that. And do I understand it correctly? They are selling me, um, if I understand it, they are buying the year prior to the third year and I have to pay the two prior years taxes, and then I have to do a tax confirmation suit. Is that the uh, the format? Well, so they they've already so they had paid the taxes that were outstanding uh, previously that were past due, and after two years have passed, they have asked the chancery clerk to issue a, a either a clerk's conveyance or a tax deed and the clerk actually issues them the tax deed, what you're buying uh, is you're buying the, the clerk's conveyance or the tax deed. And, and, you know, going back to what I previously said, the Supreme Court said that's, that's not clear title, but perfect title. But it, in reality, it's not because it's so easy to set aside the tax sale. Um, and so what you're doing is you're buying property that's not marketable until you actually go through the confirmation uh, process on it and get an order from a court saying that you do have good, clear, marketable title. Chuck, does that help you with your answer? Yeah, that's interesting. Um, and what is entailed with a tax confirmation 
give you a rough idea of, of the legal cost, just rough framework in what's entailed. Well, I mean, it's, it's hard to say how much something like that would cost. I, you just have to check with your local market and see what the attorneys are, are quoting on that. It's, you know, we'd have to do, uh, typically what we do is we meet with the client, get all the information, get the tax deed. We'll do a search on the property itself. We'll try to look back through and see if we can determine what sort of notice was given to the owner and any, any uh, lien holders on the property file the suit and, and like i had said previously the best way to win that is not have anybody on the other side show up if somebody else does show up on the other side then the burden is uh kind of on you to actually show that the chancery clerk followed the statutory procedure so it, it, it really is a case-by-case -case basis and there are some chancery clerks out there that probably do a better job of following the statute and keeping uh, documentation of that versus others Thank you, Chuck, for calling in. We're glad we were able to be of assistance to you. Let's now go to New Albany and speak with Katie. Katie, we're glad you've called in on our property show for In Legal Terms with attorney Terry Little. Katie, what's your comment or question? Hi. I just purchased a home in New Albany. We were scheduled to close on December 22nd, and I received a call saying we may not be able to close. We have not gotten the payoff on the previous mortgage um, so we did not close and uh, we did not close until January 3rd because the law office closed for the holidays this resulted in uh, my not being able to file for homestead exemption which is going to cost me $2,000 more is there any um, recourse for the failure of the parties to get the payoff? Well, I, I guess that depends on whether or not there was a breach of the contract that you had with them for the sale. Was Did the contract have a closing date on it? Uh, the, for the purchase? Of, yes, ma'am. For my purchase, yes, it had a closing date. Okay, and, and was, that, when, was that closing date what, what, what was the closing date? December 22nd. I'm okay. sorry. And did y'all yeah, file or did y'all sign an addendum extending the closing date to another date? No, they just called me and said we may not be able to close because uh, we don't have the payoff on the mortgage. And um, I received a call early the morning of the 22nd saying we were not able to get the payoff. So then it was changed until January 3rd. Were there realtors involved? Yes. Well, typically what we would do, if, if, a, if the parties can't make the closing date in a contract, we ask the realtors to execute an addendum with both parties, extending the closing date to at least far enough out in the future that we think we can close it. Um, that that would basically extend the time for the performance by the seller to obtain the payoff in order to close. You, you, would, you would basically be acquiescing to a later closing date, uh, you know, because of something unforeseen, maybe like being able to get the payoff in a timely manner. Uh, and then in that case, there's really no remedy that you would have for you know, not being able to file for homestead until the following year. Um, I, you well, know, I can't tell you. I can't tell you why there wasn't an addendum done in your case in which they extended the contract. But we would have we would have asked for an addendum to be done and only closed after that addendum was signed, extending the contract date. In, in our case, you wouldn't have a remedy. In your particular case, you know, I would say ultimately you probably acquiesce to the later closing date by going ahead and closing versus right, uh, pursuing right. a breach of contract. Yes, so it's, it's regrettable. Uh, it's basic real estate 101, and it just fell through the cracks, and I paid the price. Thank you so much. I appreciate your, yes. uh, your uh, response to this. 
Thank yes, you, Katie. We're glad that you've called in. And I guess that's another reason where you have to weigh if you're going to uh, seek a remedy in court versus what it would cost you anyway. I would think you'd have to you'd have to measure the benefits versus the disadvantages. And if you if you actually wanted the house, it may just be an unfortunate incident of where you can't claim homestead until a full year later. We love to take your questions on our email address. That's legalterms at mpbonline.org. Francis and Lee, hang on. We're going to take our last break of the hour. If you need an assistance from an attorney, I will give you a great website for you to check. That's next. This is In Legal Terms on MPB Think Radio. Grayson. You can now listen to the wild, weird, and wonderful stories of Mississippi with Mile Marker. Some of the big names that travel up and down the highways, obviously Elvis and Johnny Cash, and you have Jerry Lewis, Hall Perkins. Join me as we hit the roads of Mississippi on Mile Marker. Johnny Cash suggested that Paul write a song called Blue Suede Shoes that was all kind of created with Aaron Amory. You can listen by going to mpbonline.org slash radio or by using your favorite podcasting app. For being part of In Legal Terms. If you've missed any of our program, you can listen to the whole show on the MPB Think Radio YouTube channel. It's also available on the MPB Public Media app, as are most of our shows. Our host is Professor Richard Gershon of the University of Mississippi School of Law. I'm Liz Gill. We're talking with Terry Little from Harper Little in Oxford and taking your questions about real estate. Let's go to Francis in Natchez. Francis, thanks for hanging on. Can I have, uh, uh, what's your comment or question for our guest, Attorney Terry Little? Okay, thanks for having me on. Uh, my question is, what are Mississippi views on mineral rights? And uh, if land, you know, you, you got ancestors on it, and, you know, how far, you know, and how would you go about proving that, the owners of the property have the mineral right? Right. That's a great question. Um, so mineral rights can be severed from the surface land, first of all, and can be conveyed separately. So you can have a separate surface owner versus a separate mineral owner who owns the minerals under the ground. Um, this, this is typically done with an oil and gas lease. Uh, it could also be done with... Uh, other minerals or gravel or, or rocks that can be sold out from underneath the land. I'm thinking about oil. <laughs> yeah. So, so typically, what happens is you, whenever there's a company and, and they are collecting leases, uh, they basically put together a unit, an oil and gas unit. And they go to the the oil and gas board, get the unit approved. They may then drill a well. Uh, they have previously done the title work to try to determine who all owns the mineral rights to the property that they're putting in the unit. Mm-hmm. And uh, they'll send out landmen to those people and try to obtain leases from them. If they can't get a lease from them, then they may incorporate them into a working interest and charge them uh, a percentage of the cost of the well and the maintenance of the well. Uh, but at some point, the unit gets the unit gets approved. Uh, the if they're if the well's productive and any money's being made uh, over and above the expenses, the, the leaseholders, the the people that have given the leases to the oil and gas company will receive royalties. Okay. Um, and then where, where would you did, go to find out if your family has the mineral rights to this property? Right. All all those records are kept where the land records are, and so you would have to have an oil and gas mineral search done, and those are typically a lot more expensive than just a 
typical land surface search, which is what we do yeah. for a typical real estate closing, because you are going back very, very far back in the land records, bringing everything yeah. forward, and, and you're actually having to do, a landman does a lot of uh, footwork on the ground trying to trace down descendants of people, um, yeah. just trying to find everyone that could potentially be an owner uh, in the mineral interest. So it's it's an involved process. I, yeah. I had the unfortunate uh, pleasure of being an oil and gas uh, title attorney for about three years out of law school and we would we would receive books upon books of abstracts and go through and 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 basically delineate a person's interest down to six decimal points or, or more wow and, uh, you, you could have you could have hundreds and hundreds of people within an oil and gas unit that would have to be paid and, and some had a very very small interest and it's just part of the part of the title work that has to be done to discover that. Okay. All righty. Thank you. Thank you for uh, being on the calling in with your question, Francis. We have one last caller, and that last caller's name is Lee. Lee from Memphis. We're glad you've called in. What's your comment or question for our guest, Attorney Terry Little? Yes, um, I have two questions, and I know you're short on time. One's property and one's estate. The estate is very pressing uh, since I just lost my father, and I, I can't, I don't know what to do about this situation with my brother. Um, can y'all help me with this question? Well, let's find out what the question is, Lee. Okay. All right, great. Um, so my brother was given sole um, POA of my father's estate. And um, my father died of brain cancer. And the last two weeks of his life, my brother had to change his will and cut one of the family members out of it and put his children in instead. And um, so my brother's wife thinks she's got jurisdiction over everything. So she went into my mother's and my father's home and took everything she wanted, including all my mother's jewelry. Um, and they turned around and gave it to their children and his wife. So he's saying he's got sole authority, he can do whatever he wants to, and um, his wife is extremely um, a gold digger, and she's very, she's a horrible person. But um, I don't know what to do about this situation. I don't know if I have any legal rights, not having any of the POA. My mother wanted me to have medical POA, and I thought that was what was going on, but I found out that that's not at all what my father and brother did. But my brother did this with my dad. The last, after he was established with brain cancer, the last couple of weeks of his life, he changed his will. Um, so I just don't know, um, does my sister-in-law have authority over me with my mother and father's belongings? Well, I don't, I'm not, is, is the, uh, was your, where did she, where did she reside or where did your father reside, I guess, is the first question. They both were in Memphis, Tennessee. Okay, so I, I'm not I'm not a Tennessee barred attorney, so I couldn't really tell you an answer on that. I can I can tell you generally that a, a power of attorney is only good for while the person is alive. There there's a durable general power of attorney which gives the attorney, in fact, is, is what we call them. It gives them you know quite a wide bit of latitude in what they can do in exercising the business of the person that's given the power of attorney. However, I, that the the breadth of that is not is not infinite. There's certain things that they can't do, and, and so if they're if they're self-dealing, if they have a confidential relationship with the person uh, that they have the power of attorney from, uh, that could all be challenged in court, uh, probably even in Tennessee, uh, to try to point out that you know there have been some inequities that have happened and some self-dealing. And uh, basically, perhaps some advantages taken uh, on behalf of one family member against another family member. So I would probably reach out to a Tennessee Bar attorney with your question and, and see if, uh, once you gave them specific facts, if there's anything that they could help you with. What was your uh, second okay. question, Lee? She was not. Um, my next door neighbor, uh, he just recently moved in, and the previous owner had put in an eight-foot fence all the way around his property because of crime in the neighborhood. And this guy came over, and his, his bedroom window, which is really large, looks right down into my backyard on my deck. 
and uh, he took down the eight foot fence just on that side. It looks directly down into my deck, my everything I do in the backyard. But he left his eight foot fence up on the other three sides. He just took it down on my side, which is unnerving to me every time I'm out there. I see him in the window. It's just like, what? I don't even, I thought that that was uh, um, both of our fence. It's on the property line. I thought it belonged to the, both of the residents in these homes. But apparently, I guess it didn't because he took it down. I came home and it was gone. And he didn't tell me anything about this. Um, so I'm thinking about getting another fence company and just putting up my own eight foot fence on this side. I, I don't know if I have any rights with, with all of this. Lee, uh, Terry, you have one minute <laughs> to, to, to give uh, Lee, uh, tell Lee what the law might be on, uh, on, as regards to the fence. Yeah, again, if, if this is, a, is this Mississippi property or Tennessee property? I'm calling you from Memphis, Tennessee. Okay, so I, again, I'm not exactly sure what the Tennessee law is with regard to border fences and who owns what, but I, I would think you could certainly install a fence on your property line back up to the eight foot height if you wanted to, as long as you didn't, uh, 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 as long as you complied with any sorts of uh, offsets that might apply to that property. Um, and uh, Richard, did you have something that you wanted to say with regard to the estate question? I was just going to say she might also talk to an attorney about contesting the will too, which is separate from the power of attorney, and that that would be something that I think she might be able to to do too, because there might be undue influence there, uh, in in terms of what her brother did uh, at the end of her father's life. And we're sorry she's going through that. Sorry about that, Lee. But yeah, we're so glad that uh, Lee and our other callers were able to take advantage of Mississippi Public Broadcasting. If uh, we can't answer everyone's uh, questions, we are, do not provide legal advice. But if you do need a lawyer, the Mississippi Bar's website is msbar.org. They have a lawyer directory. They are under and under for the public. There are a list of resources of for pro bono assistance. And pro bono, that means free. Thank you so much, Terry Little, for being our guest today on In Legal Terms. You were fantastic. Thank you. Thank you all for having me. That's going to wrap us up for In Legal Terms. We hope you can listen to our podcasts. Thank you, Java Chapman. Thank you, Jay White, for being on our show. For Professor Richard Gershon, who hosts from the University of Mississippi's School of Law, I'm Liz Gill. We do hope that you can join us next Tuesday at 10 a.m. Central for In Legal Terms on MPB Think Radio. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast.